Hello, AJT readers. Welcome to the February 2024 Editor's Pick and Highlights podcast for the journal. I'm joined today by my colleagues, David Crone, a surgery resident at Massachusetts General Hospital, who's in his third year now of research. And I'm also joined by another special guest, Dr. John Greenland, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care, Allergy, and Sleep Medicine at UCSF and the San Francisco VA. I'm your typical host, Roz Mannon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and we're all thinking and looking forward to Josh's graduation as president so that he can join us back here for the highlights. I'd like to give you the rundown of the papers we're going to do and the order we're going to do them in case you're listening and perhaps want to skip ahead, or maybe you'd like to listen again. We'll start off with Dr. Crone presenting pure laparoscopic donor hepatectomy experience of 556 cases at Seoul National Hospital by Hong and colleagues from Seoul National University College of Medicine in Seoul, Korea. And this was also accompanied by two thought-provoking editorials, one by Ben Samstein at Cornell and the other by Dennis Balsi of Istanbul, Turkey. Then we'll transition the program to a very different topic. We'll be talking about uh, mouse models of lung transplant and the role of donor um, exposures. The first paper will be smoking exposure-induced bronchus-associated lymphoid tissue in donor lungs does not prevent tolerance induction after transplant by Tarada and colleagues. Senior author is Dan Kreisel at Washington University of St. Louis. And our second paper will be aging exacerbates murine lung ischemia reperfusion injury by excessive inflammation and impaired tissue repair responses by Hayasaka and colleagues. They're from Tohoku and Sendai Medical Centers in Japan. We'll wrap up the podcast with two very different topics, augmenting the U.S. transplant registry with external mortality data, a moving re- target right for further improvement by Noreen and colleagues from the UNOS and SRT registries, and an accompanying editorial by Steve Chabben and John Gill. And we'll wrap up the podcast on a very different topic, maintaining the permanence principle of death during normothermic regional perfusion and controlled DCD Results of a prospective clinical study by Royo Villanova, senior author is Beatrice Dominguez-Gill, a collaborative study uh, in Madrid and Santander, Spain. So without further ado, after all that introduction, I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Crone to talk about laparoscopic hepatectomy. Welcome, David. Hi, thank you very much for having me today. So in this paper by Hong et al., this is a large case series of 556 laparoscopic donor hepatectomies from Seoul National University Hospital in South Korea. Um, This is a group that has published extensively on their innovative, minimally invasive approaches to donor hepatectomy. It's a very descriptive case series, and the goal of this manuscript was to describe trends in donor and recipient outcomes over time, as their group has accumulated more experience with this procedure. For a little background first, um, they don't describe the laparoscopic donor operation in detail in this manuscript, but provide reference to other published work. Um, the laparoscopic approach is facilitated with the use of indocyanin green cholangiography in the operating room, which helps delineate the biliary anatomy. And the graft is removed via fan and steel or lower abdominal incision, uh, which is still about a 10 or 12 centimeter incision, but in a less conspicuous and usually less morbid location. They did not seek to compare laparoscopic and open techniques. Um, That has been done in other work by this group and others. And it's been established that the laparoscopic approach uh, confers shorter length of stay and similar donor morbidity, at least at this center, um, compared to conventional or, or open donor hepatectomy. It is known, however, that operative time 
times longer with the laparoscopic approach. And it's also been shown that recipients of laparoscopic donors have more biliary complications. So one of the goals of this work is to um, see if whether with the accumulation of more experience over time at a large volume center, if these downsides of the laparoscopic approach can be mitigated. So the authors reviewed medical records of donors and their recipients between 2015 and 2021, only including donors who underwent the laparoscopic approach. And while they don't explicitly say this, it doesn't appear that any robotic donor hepatectomies were included in this series. Uh, it's important to note that all operations were performed by just three surgeons. And the authors note that they don't have um, strict selection criteria or absolute contraindications for who, who gets the laparoscopic approach. It's more or less offered to all potential donors. And to characterize differences in the cohort and outcomes over time, the authors split the cohort into three stages, the earliest cases, the middle, and then the most recent cases performed. So as far as overall characteristics of the donors, the average age was 24, more men than women. Most were sons or daughters donating to a parent, and the average BMI was 24. Overall, um, average operative time was about four and a half hours with 12 minutes of warm ischemia time. The vast majority were right hepatectomies, and I'll refer you to the paper for more um, anatomic details of the graphs. Length of stay was seven days. The total complication rate in donors was 7%, and the rate of major complications was just 2%. And they provide granular details of, about the um, complications in those 12 donors who experienced them. Um, biliary complications were the most common, with most requiring an ERCP, and there were no donor deaths reported. As for the recipients, the average age was 56. There were only a couple pediatric recipients, more men than women, and also low BMI. This cohort has a higher proportion of HCC and lower MELD scores than we see in U.S. cohorts. Of note, the length of stay for the recipients was long. It was 28 days on average. 29% of uh, recipients experienced major complications within 30 days, and 44% experienced major complications beyond that time, and most complications were biliary. Recipient survival was good, 94% at one year and 83% at five years. Now, as for the trends over time, as authors gained uh, cumulatively more experience with the operation, operative time decreased. It was about 24 minutes shorter in the most recent cohort um, compared to the earliest one. There was a slight decrease in warm ischemia time um, by one minute over time, slight decrease in length of stay by about half a day. As for donor complications, despite uh, the cumulative increase in experience um, throughout the time period of the study, half of the major complications still occurred in the most recent era, actually. Um, as for recipient outcomes over time, complication rates in the recipients were similar over time, with the exception of bleeding being more common recently, and there was no difference in recipient survival over time. So in summary, this is a very large case series of laparoscopic donor hepatectomies performed at a single institution by three surgeons um, with excellent donor outcomes. Over time, operative time decreased by a modest amount and warm ischemia time by a small amount. Major complications are rare in donors at this center, um, but the high rate of biliary complications in recipients of this approach continues to pose a challenge. Donor and recipient complication rates did not change significantly over time, but there was a trend towards less biliary complications over time that did not reach statistical significance. And the authors described some of the recent technical changes in their approach to minimize biliary complications. So the authors conclude that laparoscopic donor hepatectomy in their high volume and experienced center can be safe and efficacious, um, but do provide a cautious reminder that serious complications can still occur. 
So overall, I think this is an impressively large case series with good donor outcomes. And there's certainly a lot more detail in the paper about the cohort and the outcomes. And I'll refer you to the manuscript for more details. So I, not being a liver surgeon, do have a couple of questions, David. Are the complications they identified less frequent and comparable to that with open hepatectomy? I mean, and, and same for the length of stay. I mean, I don't know what the normal length of stay is for a normal person getting part of their liver removed. Is seven days, which is what their average was, about what we would, I mean, what's the advantage here gained? Maybe it, is it recovery, length of stay, less complications? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So in uh, this paper, they did not make a comparison to the standard open approach, but there are other recent publications from the same group in which they, they did so. So another manuscript where they did a propensity-matched comparison between the two approaches showed that um, complication rates overall were similar between laparoscopic and open. But when you look at the specific types of complications, or excuse me, let me rephrase that. Complication rates in the donors are similar between the two approaches. Okay. Complication rates in the recipients of laparoscopic versus open hepatectomies are similar overall. But when you look at the breakdown of recipient complications, you do see more biliary complications um, in the recipients of laparoscopic donor hepatectomies. So that, that may explain the longer length of stay? The length of stay has been shown to be about a day shorter in oh, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. for for uh, for the laparoscopic donors themselves. Um, but I think you're asking actually about the longer length of stay in the recipients. In the recipients, um, yeah. I wonder if that was related maybe. to that. Yeah, they might have different protocols for how they manage patients in the hospital. I thought 21 days was a long length of stay for it recipients. It seems long, especially with better mel. But like, you know, like I said, I'm a nephrologist. So what would I know? I'm also curious about the BMI. You know, we really struggle here with lap nephrectomy. And we have a BMI threshold that's much higher. Do you think this is practical with a standard U.S., you know, the median BMI being higher than 23? Um, that's a good question. It's important to note the differences in the, the patient populations. BMI of the donors and the recipients is certainly um, lower in the, the population in this paper. You know, we um, this paper is not looking at the robotic approach, but to use that as an example, in the U.S., we're offering robotic operations um, to help expand the BMI criteria because it confers less incisional-related wound morbidity in obese patients compared to open operations. So, but that being said, um, I think whether the approach is laparoscopic or open, certainly with a, a higher, uh, more obese population, we're likely to see more complications than this cohort might have. Great. Thanks um, for your comments. So uh, moving on, we'll have Dr. Greenland talk about uh, the two lung transplant papers. Thanks for the invitation to join today's podcast. I'm John Greenland, and I'd like to talk about a couple of fascinating studies in the American Journal of Transplantation, both on the topic of donor selection. Nearly 1,000 people are currently listed for lung transplantation and many will die on the waiting list. Yet only 20% of donated lungs are transplanted. Determining which marginal lungs can be transplanted is a clear path to improving survival for those on the waiting list. So it's worth considering whether we should transplant lungs from donors who have smoked or from older donors. Researchers at Washington University and Cornell have tackled the question about using lungs for donors who have smoked in the paper Smoking exposure-induced bronchus-associated lymphoid tissue in donor lungs does not prevent tolerance induction after transplantation. 
Traditionally, a cis tree of 20 cigarette pack years is a relative contraindication to lung donation. While outcomes from donors with a smoking history appear worse, frequently transplant candidates do better accepting a lung from a donor who smoked than by waiting for the perfect organ. One interesting feature of cigarette smoke-exposed lungs is an increased presence of bronchus-associated lymphoid tissue, or BALT. BALT is similar to lung-associated lymph nodes with organized aggregates of T and B cells around high endothelial venules found adjacent to airways. Adult humans typically only have BALT in the context of inflammatory responses, such as the response to cigarette smoke. This study addresses a crucial question. Does the presence of cigarette smoke-induced BALT in donor lungs affect alloimmune responses following lung transplantation? To address this question, the team at Cornell exposed mice to cigarette smoke and then sent them to St. Louis, where exposed lungs underwent orthotopic lung transplantation. As expected, smoke exposure induced BALT, but all BALT is not created equal. The presence of FOXP3 positive, ST2 positive, and amphiregulin positive T cells suggested that this BALT had tolerogenic properties. Recipient immune cells interact with this tissue, and donor-derived immune cells were lost over time. Importantly, the findings from both mouse data and single-center human lung transplant data challenge a common assumption. Despite the induction of smoking-induced BALT in donor lungs, the donor smoking history did not predispose the recipient to acute cellular rejection or chronic lung allograft dysfunction. While there are important differences in mouse lung physiology, immune suppression strategies, and cigarette smoke exposure that make this an imperfect model, these findings suggest that BALT may have tolerogenic properties that mitigate some of the detrimental effects of cigarette smoke. These data lend mechanistic insights into an important recent study from the Lung Transplant Outcomes Group. In 470 lung transplant recipients across multiple centers, donor smoking was consistently associated with increased risk of primary graft dysfunction. However, this primary graft dysfunction did not translate into an increased risk of graft failure. It is possible that the induction of BALT may explain how smoking-associated primary graft dysfunction may be less detrimental than primary graft dysfunction from other causes. Overall, these data support consideration of lungs from donors who have smoked to improve survival across the population of lung transplant candidates. A second pool of potentially underutilized donor lungs are those from donors over 65 years old. Here again, Outcomes from older donor lungs have been shown to be worse compared to younger lungs in some analyses. However, older recipients who receive older lungs seem to do just about as well, and most candidates would do better with older lungs as compared to remaining on the wait list. There's a lot going on with older lungs that could explain worse outcomes. Lungs retain their epigenetic age following transplant, meaning that their gene expression patterns retain an influence of the donor's birth date. Age-associated immune programs are frequently linked to increased inflammation, sometimes termed inflammaging. At the same time, molecular hallmarks of aging, such as shortening of the telomeric ends of chromosomes, persist within the allograft after transplant. There's even evidence that primary graft dysfunction could accelerate 
the biologic age of the oligarch and increase subsequent clad risk. In the paper, aging exacerbates murine ischemia reperfusion injury by excessive inflammation and impaired tissue repair response. Investigators examined two-month and two-year-old mice, which are the equivalent to around ages 15 and 65 in human years. A Hyler clamp was performed for 60 minutes to induce ischemia reperfusion injury. Lung injury was assessed by wet-to-dry ratios and histologic assessments, with older mice showing more edema at day one post-Hyler clamp. Gene expression analyses showed older mice had more inflammation across multiple pathways, including those related to allograft rejection. Older mice had increased apoptosis and impaired type 2 alveolar epithelial cell proliferation. These findings of increased inflammation and decreased capacity for self-renewal are consistent with the established hallmarks of aging. Such processes could reasonably explain worse outcomes in older grafts. While these data would suggest an increased risk for primary graft dysfunction in older mice, such an association has not been seen in humans. There are several reasons why this Hyler clamp model might not reflect a human transplant with prolonged cold ischemia time and an alloimmune response. Further, the best correlate of primary graft dysfunction in the Hyler clamp model is arterial oxygenation, which was not measured here. Orthotopic lung transplantation with prolonged cold ischemia studies may not even be possible with older mice, since mouse lung transplant is quite sensitive to the weight of donor mice, which increases with age. Inflammation is also a complicated process, including multiple systems, so it is not obvious how one would target age-associated inflammation in the context of lung transplantation. We likely need additional attention to human recipients of older donors to determine how to address donor age-related complications. Together, these papers help us to think about the biologic consequences of transplanting lungs from donors with a history of smoking or advanced age. These are critical issues as these lungs are sorely needed. Smoking and aging are also key players in lung health more broadly, so understanding these mechanisms in the context of transplantation may lead to new therapies across pulmonary medicine. Thanks again for the invitation to discuss these important papers from the American Journal of Transplantation. Well, John, that's an incredibly nice summary, and I like how you extracted using these models sort of the key points focusing on perhaps donor risk. How do you see this potentially translating into perhaps allocation or maybe donor acceptance in terms of maybe the surgeon saying, well, we have these data, now we have a better comfort level in terms of the outcomes? That's a great question. I can certainly imagine transplant surgeons considering these data as they approach marginal candidate uh, organs. And uh, so there are two separate questions, one about to the smoking donors, where the paper in mice showing you know, some potential mechanisms for tolerance is interesting and supportive of what we've seen in LTOG, that the risks of using donors who have smoked uh, may not be as bad as we previously thought. Mm -hmm. In the context of advanced age donor, it's more difficult to interpret the mouse models in terms of uh, what they could say about uh, their while there was the suggestion for increased risk, 
Um, it's a complicated mouse model that's well removed from the clinical situation. And the human data don't really support that as being a major implication. So if I were to summarize, I would say both are reasonable to proceed with caution. And we're going to wait for some additional data to really know how to interpret these. Great. Thanks so much, John. We'll transition now to um, the papers I'm going to talk about. Uh, the first is really a fascinating uh, paper uh, augmenting the U.S. United States transplant registry with external mortality data by Samantha Noreen and colleagues. And the senior author is John Snyder. You know, this paper represents a collaboration of both the UNOS OPTN, members of the UNOS Data Advisory Committee, and the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients. And this paper focuses on how mortality, or i.e. death data, are captured and confirmed for uh, all, in all sort of organs, and the methodologies used by UNOS versus those used by SRTR. And the accompanying editorial by Steve Chadban and John Gill also um, provides some additional insight. Now, the goal of this paper isn't to dispute that UNOS does it better or SRTR does it better, but identifying the extent of the problem in gathering mortality data, particularly on waitlisted dialysis patients uh, after a year, living donors after two years of the mandatory follow-up, as well as recipients of organ transplants well beyond the mandatory three-year follow-up required reporting, and how those problems impact you know, the overall data and how they're studied. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background because, unfortunately, I was involved in some of this back when I was AST president. We Let me just say that there were two recent papers in both the New England Journal and the American Journal on Transplant in 2021 about kidney transplant recipients by Drs. Harry Heron and Poggio, respectively. And they looked at transplant outcomes over the last two decades, and they really touted that we had made significant advances in both patient and graft survival since the 1990s. However, as I'll show you, the gathering of late patient data is complicated. And I think that when I look back at these papers again, I recognize there needs to be a lens of an understanding of how difficult it is to get the true information. And perhaps we're looking at these data more rosily or with rose-colored glasses, to so to speak, uh, than perhaps we should. This paper identifies the many steps that have changed over time, and they're summarized in Table 1. It's a great chronology. Unfortunately, I was involved in 2011 when the Social Security Administration uh, determined that the Social Security Act could not supersede state laws limiting public access, meaning that the information from state death certificates was no longer available in the public version of the Social Security Death Master file. And this resulted in about 4 million lost or records of death, which represented 5% of all deaths, and led to an annual exclusion of about a million individuals or 40% new deaths in the new files. And this was a problem that we recognized in transplantation in terms of outcomes, as did many other disease groups. And in spite of our constant lobbying, the Social Security Administration went forward. Now, the death master files are provided to the OPTN, but the public reporting is restricted and requires independent verification. So in 2013, the OPTN started this verification process for all deaths within the first three months of transplant and the first year of waitlist removal. And the deaths were considered verified by a number of methods, including transplant center reports, data death captured by CMS, or captured by claims data recorded in AccuPoint, which is a proprietary data linking tool, or identified, believe it or not, by manual searches of obituaries. But in 2022, a major change came, and manual verification of deaths was outsourced by the OPTN. 
And this expanded the inclusion of deaths, resulting in the addition of 35,000 new deaths reported in OPT and records in 2022. And as you can imagine, when you think about the entire transplant patient population, this is a sizable number of deaths that not would obviously impact investigation and based on data that had been studied, as well as patient outcomes, I think center and patient assessments of quality of the program. So I will return and reiterate that in exhaustive detail, uh, both uh, organizations provide how they verify death, and this is shown in figure one. And recall that there are two public data sets. I'll remind everybody that there is the OPTN STAR file, the standard transplant analysis file, and then there's what the SRTR calls the SAF file or standard analysis file. A key finding in this paper was that unverified deaths accounted for about 15 to 17% of deceased and living Dover deaths. And moreover, the differences seen that occurred between the outcomes of death between the STAR files and the SAF fell considerably with the institution of this additional death verification. And comparisons of these death outcomes are shown throughout the paper, both one, three, and 10-year outcomes, and also for all organs. While the differences at one and three years, and, and one and five years, I apologize, were lessened and were pretty close to begin with, very similar, it was really the impact at 10-year survival that we saw the verification death data really having an impact. In fact, the number of unverified data went from about 12 to 15% at 10-year and recipients of deceased donors to about 5% after the change in verification. So some of you may say, well, this is really an impact on the epidemiologist and people that like to write health services research outcome kind of papers. But I would, I would argue that the outcomes such as death affect a lot of processes that we deal with as physicians, and they include reimbursement, maybe less so because most of our current metrics are really focused on early rather than late outcomes. But certainly, as you reflect on them, they can affect clinical practices. They affect patient expectations. They could affect referrals and obviously research studies. And it's really difficult to do long-term outcome assessments when you realize that it's really the transplant center where the burden of reporting has frequently fallen to, especially within the first year. So remember that centers are responsible for reporting deaths of their patients, particularly in the early post-transplant period. But as you know, as the prevalent population of our recipients grows, and for organs like the kidney in particular, as well as liver, they're so much more common in the population that these patients may be now directed for community-based care, whether it's nephrology, hepatology, or a primary care provider. And their contact with the transplant center really becomes limited, maybe to an annual visit at best. And so later reporting becomes less robust. We also know that transplant centers don't enjoy being burdened by paperwork and that there are clear differences in the completeness of the reporting from center to center. This paper raises the understanding now, of, at least in my mind, of how death is ascertained. And it's important to notice that death is, is really a local report in, in our country and state's responsibility. In other countries, such as Canada, it's a provincial responsibility that has jurisdiction, such that, for example, in the, uh, I guess, in Quebec, you cannot get the information reported nationally to other Canadians. Likewise, the accuracy and cause of death in the Australian-New Zealand data registry, which has been utilized in kidney transplant in particular for multiple different um, disease processes in terms of patient outcome, is also complicated. And so... Um, Many of us have depended on these reports to understand the global nature of our findings and perhaps impact the changes in the way patients are managed. 
This paper, I think, emphasizes the need for outside desk registries beyond the U.S., again, to really apply best practices in the care of our patients, as well as for the ascertainment, the validation, and completeness of data that we have here in this country. I want to point out a couple of interesting things that I wasn't really aware of, but, you know, in the editorial in particular, the inability to use the full death master file is not unique to transplant. So clearly other disease processes are having issues with it. Whether they follow their patients for these long-term outcomes is not entirely clear to me. We also have a number of interesting data restrictions that I wasn't aware of. For example, there is an exclusion of CMS deaths from the OPTN SAF file, but those deaths are included for kidney transplant, at least, in the USRDS SAF file. Those SAF files now for the USRDS are not available now outside the U.S., and so there certainly is a call, one for interagency cooperation, but also for consideration to provide those uh, data as in bulk to uh, individuals outside the U.S. for study. So I think the editorial highlights particularly the lack of a rigorous outcome ascertainment could limit innovation for things such as pragmatic trials. And unfortunately, the paper has no suggested recommendation for a solution to this problem. Um, in fact, um, with so many transplant recipients in the U.S. on Medicare, could there be a Medicare master beneficiary file that may circumvent this problem? So um, with that, I'm happy to stop for a second. I think, David, you had a comment you'd want to make about this paper. Yeah, a comment more than a question, but um, I applaud UNOS and the SRTR for their transparency in a paper like this. Um, you mentioned how this is important to everyone in transplantation because of the wide-ranging implications of um, you know, accurate ascertainment of mortality data. It's really helpful to researchers who work with these registry databases. And uh, I think that um, this paper is just a good reminder that researchers using the UNOS or SRTR databases need to be mindful of the availability, and reliability, and limitations of the data and how data collection efforts have changed over time. So in particular, anybody um, who's doing a study with a cohort that goes back many years, goes back decades maybe, is going to have to consider how... Um, UNOS and the SRTR have changed their data collection efforts and definitions over time. And any given variable that you're interested in might not be um, you know, reliably uh, collected across all years of your study. And this paper provides an example about how, you know, particularly when you're looking at long-term follow-up, like 10-year survival here, how um, you really need to question the, um, the accuracy of the data if you're going further back in time with your cohorts. Not to mention all the other things like allocation policy that changes over time. So just a word of caution for anyone who's considering research studies with large cohorts that span a wide time frame. And that's really relevant to those two papers I mentioned in the New England Journal in 2021, Harry Heron, which gave a very, uh, you know, a nice sort of cohesive look back from the mid to late 1990s comparing uh, outcomes based on slope of patient survival and graft survival in different cohorts out to the 2011-2015 range, and really highlighting, oh, the improvement in slope. And again, we know that for short-term outcomes, but the longer-term outcomes, I think, are suspect, particularly after you read this paper. And, and similarly, the Poggio paper looked at it, the question in a little bit different way, but again, went back and used these really older cohorts to sort of give a very, what I think was a positive message. And for those of us that manage patients that are studying late graft outcomes, whether it's graft failure or premature death with a functioning graft, 
it's really important to have accurate data. And I know that it gets more and more difficult. And I wouldn't be a very popular person if I said it's on the center. Uh, you know, again, engaging patients to come and report when there's a death. I know we had that that trouble with COVID where people just said, well, I, you know, he was dead and he had COVID, but I don't know if he had COVID-related death, that kind of thing. So I appreciate that comment, David. I think as an investigator and and, and outcomes, you realize what a challenge it is. Well, I might need your help for this last paper because this is way out of my transplant wheelhouse. But my last paper is really an interesting paper by the group in Spain, maintaining the permanent principle of death during normothermic regional perfusion in control donation after a circulatory determination of death. Again, this is work by Beatriz Domizguez-Gill and colleagues. As many of you know, the utilization of normothermic regional perfusion has been published and identified to be a valuable technique to increase and improve the outcomes of both liver and thoracic organs in the, in the situation of a DCD. And I think kidneys have already been utilized with and without normothermic perfusion. So this focus is really on these other organs. And we had a previous podcast where we talked about the outcomes of thoracoabdominal as a, as a opportunity to improve liver outcomes in particular. So what I didn't realize and I didn't think of um, was that there is an ongoing ethical concern that when you reestablish donor circulation, you might reestablish circulation in the brain and violate this permanence principle of death. Uh, this principle entails that the brain should not be reperfused such that there is a maintenance of permanent loss of brain function, which consists of consciousness, uh, independent respiration, and brainstem function. So certainly the use of pumps in NRP perhaps could lead to unexpected reperfusion of the brain. And so this study was undertaken as a small study mainly to assess the primary outcome which was the measurement of intracranial pressure and arterial blood pressure during uh, in situ NRP. Now, I will be the first to tell you I'm not a surgeon, and my last donor run did not include NRP, so I'll try to explain this as best as I can, and I'll take comments afterwards. But notably, in the abdominal regional perfusion, the thoracic aorta was blocked with an intra-aortic occlusion balloon, and in the thoracoabdominal normothermic perfusion, the arch vessels were clamped and the cephalic ends were vented to the atmosphere, not to negative pressure, such that the investigators measured both intraarterial pressure over time as well as intracranial pressure. And this is a report of a small number of cases. There are 10 DCDs. I believe two were thoracoabdominal and the rest were abdominal. And they went ahead and showed measurable blood pressure of 70 to 80s as mean, but the intracranial pressure in both the uh, in both uh, intraabdominal and abdominal remained relatively steady at around eight to twelve millimeters, obviously quite low, consistent with the fact that they were able to prevent uh, any significant perfusion of the brain. And their conclusion is with these stable intracranial pressures, this kind of data should mitigate the concerns of reanimation of the brain. Of course, not being an expert, however, I would say just in standard studies, this is a very small study. In particular, the thoracoabdominal cases were quite limited. The authors considered that this was an important limitation, but felt that it was important to get this published data out to the public for their awareness. They felt that the assessment of intracranial pressure at the Circle of Willis during the entire procedure was an excellent method to assure the donor team there was no reperfusion of the brain. And again, there was some discussion about 
the venting aortic, clamping of aortic arch vessels and whether this should be negative or atmospheric pressure. And they felt that their procedure through atmospheric pressure showed the stability of intracranial pressure, which did not increase. Indeed, there when there was actually increase in um, intraarterial pressure over the course of, of NRP, the brain perfusion remained effectively the same. So, um, you know, moving forward, um, the authors feel that you know, enhancing the use of normothermic regional perfusion would really be an opportunity to get more organs out. DCDs have definitely made a super, you know, a really considerable increase in the population of kidneys that we get. And certainly their impact for both liver and thoracic organs uh, is an opportunity. And again, there may still be ongoing debates about this permanence of brain function or lack of function. And hopefully this kind of data and the transparency by these individuals will mitigate those concerns. David, I don't know if your center is using NRP in any context. I know I recently visited Toronto and they actually don't uh, in their DCDs. Their their OPO, their setup is really difficult and really mitigates them being able, I believe, to set that up. But the Spanish seem to have these opportunities in their OR. And um, I think this study was actually done in the ICU. They actually moved people to the neuro ICU so they could do the uh, intra, uh, intracranial pressure measurements properly. Hey, we are just starting to use abdominal NRP. So, I mean, the adoption of this um, practice certainly has varied across the country and I think has really been driven by OPOs, you know, the OPO and their um, sort of determination of their ethical stance, where they stand on it, the outcomes are clear that um, it is a useful practice that can improve the um, availability of useful graphs for um, for transplant. Um, you know, we also have machine perfusion, which has taken off across the country. And I think that a lot of OPOs and centers have sort of decided where they're going to invest their resources. Are we going to go down the NRP pathway for starters or machine perfusion? And soon we'll figure out you know, how to use both together. But certainly anyone in the field has been seeing the ethical debates over this practice. And um, um, I commend the authors for um, producing some data that will guide those debates because um, that really is critical because, you know, one of the key um, ethical concerns is about the potential to reestablish circulation of the brain. And um, uh, we really need studies like this that provide some hard data so that we as a field can can make the right decisions for a, a practice like this, which is rather there's two different camps that are kind of polarized on it at this time. And the good news is that's one battle I, I can just sort of step back and go hmm, and study it as well. So again, I'd encourage the readership to take a dive. This is a very clearly written paper and we've talked about NRP in another paper with an NRP, more of an NRP expert. And again, I think this is something that won't be going away for sure. Well, I want to thank you both for your time. It was a very diverse set of papers. We can thank Dr. Fang for that. And um, we'll talk to you uh, maybe at ATC. I won't be at ISHLT typically, but thank you guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. See you there. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 